It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. If you like listening to Warriors in Their Own Words, check out our other show, the Medal of Honor Podcast. The link is in the show description. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Ensign Nathan Irwin. Irwin served in the Navy in a naval combat demolition unit during World War II and was among the first to invade Normandy on D-Day. NCDU's Naval Combat Demolition Unit. I volunteered for the NCDU's. I was training at Camp Perry, which is the training camp for the Seabees. As I was a civil engineer officer with the rank of ensign, I was going through boot camp with the rest of the people training for the Seabees, and Commander Draper Kaufman, who was the originator of the unit, came to interview us and look for volunteers. So he talked to a group of us, and I was one of those that volunteered for the unit, along with others, of course. It was just, I thought it was something interesting. It was, uh, at the time, person's very young. You're looking for uh, something a little different. And uh, you could say uh, that type of work just attracted me. Our unit was formed to blow up the obstacles that would impede any type of amphibious operation. In other words, we'd blow up obstacles that were placed on the beach to stop the small boats from coming ashore. That was a function in our training. We were well trained in all forms of explosives and obstacles, but we devised our explosive to meet the conditions on the beach that we were going to land. And that information, we had maps, reconnaissance. The scouts and raiders actually did actual reconnaissance on the beach. And of course, there were aerial photos and things like that. We had all kinds of men. Most of my men were Seabees. So they were men uh, more practical. The Seabee was a construction battalion. My chief petty officer was a fellow that was about 10 years older, ran a welding company had good hands, he could do things. My other men seemed to be uh, uh, CBs, and they volunteered, uh, they wanted the CBs because they wanted that type of work, a little more rugged work, a little more construction work. And they were attracted to underwater demolition, all kinds, I mean, it was hard to say. None of them were really gung-ho, uh, what you call gung-ho, brave guys, you know. 
they were all average people. We did a lot of underwater work. At Camp Perry, we trained in shallow diving and deep sea diving. We had in deep sea diving, we had to put on the entire rig, which really is scary with the belt and the shoes, mask, you know, the clamp on you. And we had to work with tools under, underwater just to get the feel of it. At uh, Fort Pierce, we trained with shallow water equipment. And we were designed to go into uh, set charges underwater. The idea is we'd place charges underwater, just to, but we'd use a different type of charge. We might you have a charge in a knapsack and lash that knapsack to the bottom of the obstacle and then set the charge there. You design your charge and your technique according to what you're going to do. Actually, we didn't have much time. When we hit the beach, we were told to do about 50 feet of a roll. And they figured that's all we'd have time for. Remember, the tide was coming in as we were working. The whole invasion was planned to take cognizance of when these tide conditions were. The tide conditions were just right for the invasion around the 5th and 6th of June. As you know, the invasion was postponed a day because June 5th was awfully, the weather was terrible. It wasn't that much better on the 6th, but at least cleared up enough for us to land. If the invasion would have been postponed, they couldn't have gone into Normandy until about the 19th of June, and there was no way you're going to keep that force of men in Ellis in ships and not have this thing uh, some way that information you know, be disseminated to the enemy. We went across the channel in an LST, our crew. There were two demolition crews on our LST. At around four in the morning, the ship anchored about, uh, as I say, eight, 10 miles out. It was pitch black, it was dark. About four in the morning, we went over the side of the LST down what they call these cargo nets, these landing nets, into this little VRP, this little uh, boat to take us in. There's bobbing around. We had to load all our explosives, all our equipment over the side of this LST into this little landing boat. We had my crew. I had a crew of Navy men. I had five Army men with me that was added to our crew and three seamen. So actually, our crew was built up from six to another eight or so. Every man was designated a job. We had certain men placing the charges. We had certain men who were in charge of stringing this detonating cord down the row of charges. And we had a couple men in charge of electrically setting off the charge. You've seen these boxes of magneto. That's what we used. And every man had a certain job. And, of course, the extra men carried extra explosives. We had men just carrying a certain amount of explosives so that we could work, and they came along with us. We disembarked about 4 o'clock into these small boats. We went into the milled around an assembly area. And then around 4.35, we headed down toward the beach. And, of course, we had to follow a lead craft. Wherever he took us, we went. And the sun came up, sunset was about six, and we, we were approaching the beach. Overhead, you could see thousands of airplanes, all kinds, transports, fighters, bombers, 
And as far as you could see on the horizon were all types of naval vessels. Prior to the invasion, for about an hour, hour and a half prior to the invasion, there was a tremendous bombardment from the naval vessels, battleships, cruisers, and so forth. The paratroopers landed earlier. They landed about 12.30, 1 o'clock, and they were already fighting on the Utah sector while we were making the invasion. The 4th Army was the one that came in on our beach, and we were right there among... uh, you could say who was first, probably uh, a lot of us were there. Army, Navy, Beach Battalion, we're all on the beach. But our job was the obstacles. We didn't go even onto the beach until it was later. They were out of water, and we had to blow up that string of obstacles. There are several kinds of obstacles that will stop a small boat especially when the obstacles are a little bit underwater and the boat passes over them. You could have stakes, sharpened stakes, either steel or wood, pointed towards sea. The boat coming over, the stake would uh, rip the hull and render that craft uh, useless. Otherwise, you could have what they call tetrahedons. These are steel triangles welded together. You could have ramps. Ramps are, as the name implies, wooden ramps facing inland. So when the boat hits that, the ramp, it goes up the ramp and will tip. These are the kind of obstacles similar to these that you'll find on the beaches. The nastiest ones would be the ones with mines on. Fortunately, we didn't seem to have any problem with them. We just went ahead and place charges on the base of these obstacles. When we landed at Normandy on June 6th, we were working against a tide that averaged around 23, 24, 25 feet. So we planned the invasion so that the obstacles were out of the water and were exposed. So we worked practically on dry land. Now we had a through uh, reconnaissance by the scouts and raiders, we knew what to expect. And we knew what kind of charges to prepare. And we prepared charges using men's socks. We used a composition C2 plastic explosive. It looked like, when it came originally, it looked like uh, laundry bars that you can mold. We push them into men's socks, so you get them about this long. And at each end, we tie a length of detonating cord, we call Primacord a length of about 12 inches. So here you had a sock full of charge, each end with a detonating cord. Every man carried about 20 or 25 of these. They averaged two pounds a piece. In a knapsack, well, it really was a, what we call the M2 Army ammunition bag around your shoulder. And you use these charges to lay on the base of the obstacle and then lash these ends together so you're tying it around the base. Now, you, these obstacles are all in a line down the beach. So you have one man with a reel of the detonating cord called Primacord. And we start at one end and we tie all these loose ends to this detonating cord. It's like Christmas lights on a Christmas tree. And all we had to do was place a fuse at one end and detonate it. It would carry the charge and detonate every individual charge along the line. 
And that's what we did. We carried a bag of about 20 of these charges, each one about two pounds. We also had ex extra explosives in the vehicle, in our boat. So if the boat was hit, goodbye. Or the boat and all. You see, so we, we, our, our biggest problem was getting into shore with that load of explosives because if that boat was hit, it would have gone up the whole thing. And every man carried those explosives. I mean, uh, someone has to carry it in, and the boat has to transport it in. So it's, it's just one of the uh, parts of the job that you have to accept. You don't, you're not going to go on the beach and expect them to, to find your, your explosives right there. You have to bring in what you're going to use, you see. So when I say you don't think of these things, you, you got a job and you do it. You know, when you're milling about in that heavy sea, I was seasick, I think everybody else. So you, you don't think about it. You know, it's, and then when you're going in, you're hearing the blasting, you see the smoke. I think everybody is scared. I mean, you're scared. You don't know what to hit. Uh, you see shells landing. You see holes where shells have landed. And you just hope that, uh, I mean, you don't think of it. You go to work and you just hope you'll be okay. That's all. You can't worry too much about what's going to happen. What's going to happen will happen. Everybody was frightened to a degree. I mean, that's accurate. I mean, oh, sure, some fellows are, you know, braver than others. Some are a little more outgoing than others. But uh, I think everyone was silent. Everyone was quiet. I mean, and, you know, no one knew what to expect. You don't really know what's going to hit you when you land there. So... You know, it could have been a couple uh, 88s staring at you or something, or machine gun, you know, real bad machine gun fire, see. Well, you got to remember, uh, there's mass confusion on something like this. Whether you're the first, second, third, everybody's going in. We were slated to go in at 6.35 a.m. in the morning. The first wave, the first people to hit the shore were slated to go at 6.30 now, it all depended on who was leading you in. Now, we disembarked about eight miles off the shore. We, we were on an LST. My experience was that there was a lot of smoke, a lot of confusion, and uh, we were fortunate that it may have been the wrong beach, but we, as uh, General Roosevelt said, we'll start the war right from here, and that's where we went in. And it wasn't as heavily defended as the boys at Utah. I, however, did lose a man in the invasion. So uh, our crew felt it. All we know is the firing is coming from inland. So whether they were mortars or whether they were 88s or what, what it was, I don't know. But there were no huge... Uh, you have to remember, Omaha had these... Uh, Oh, they had the cliffs and the pillboxes and whatnot. We had pillboxes on shore because we took over one that night. There were pillboxes on shore. Uh, they, the heavy equipment, I don't know what they were firing at us. But I know one, one crew of Army men got killed, about four or five of them. We were just lucky. We, uh, I think the uh, Utah bunch lost about 10%. That's about it. Our experience was that... Uh, we just joined the rest of the rest of the people, and we had a job. And by the time we had these wired and fired, we we 
we wired up whatever we could in that small space of time, about an hour before that water came in. Once the tide came in, we couldn't do any work because we were designed for uh, a tide out conditions, you see. After the tide came in, we went up on the beach and got into a pillbox, which was uh, the Germans had to evacuate it. We got into a pillbox. We stayed there. And I had a meeting with the uh, commander and the boys just were more or less holed up there. And we went out again about four o'clock in the afternoon because the skipper told me there was another line of defenses down the beach that were not covered. So our crew covered that. We uh, set explosives just the way we did. We had additional explosives. We set explosives and blew them up just the way we planned to do. Our part went according to plan. I don't know about the rest, the army, the other battalions, the other units, but our units went according to plan, and we were able to do our job because it was laid out, and the fellows knew what they had to do. Fortunately, we found the obstacles the way the uh, reconnaissance told us. Our explo we had the explosives designed to take care of them. Our hell boxes worked. And I just before we set the charge off, we had a flare at each end, a purple flare, and we lit it for two minutes. That was a warning sign that this area was going to be blown up. But we still uh, were able to control it because we fired electrically. So we determined exactly when the firing would be. My role was to supervise the gang, and I had one of the boxes. And the chief was with me, I believe, and we had a couple other men. One man had the reel to reel it out, and the fellows, and then the rest of the fellows were, you know, setting the explosive charges. They performed very well. In fact, they went according to plan, and uh, everything went off. The man I did lose uh, was not lost in the initial invasion. He was lost later on. And uh, we don't exactly know how. It could have been a mine. It could have been. There were two airplanes that came over about 11 o'clock. You know, there was very little German uh, fighter power there as far as airplanes. We had complete control of the beach as far as the Air Corps was concerned, which we were thankful for. But if you read the books, a couple planes came over about 11 o'clock and they did cause some damage. Whether they got that one man of mine, I don't know. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because... The news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.
I was injured at uh, Southern France. We went, you know, the uh, Utah bunch went to Southern France for the invasion of Southern France, which occurred about the 16th, 17th of August. And I was hit the first five minutes. Uh, we captured the pillbox on the beach, and I was I got the men out, and I was lining them up to turn them over to the unit so we could get to work on the obstacles, which incidentally were under underwater. We had to use underwater techniques. Just then, the Germans who were retreating, this is southern France now, started to shell the beach. When I saw the shells fall, I hustled all the men back into the pillbox that we had just gotten. And before I was able to get in, a shell hit me. And it just clipped my leg and knocked me out, I don't know, 20 feet. And I was evacuated. Luckily, it just, hunk of sh a shell just hit my leg. It broke the ankle. And luckily, it didn't hit me anywhere else, which I was just lucky. And I was about the only one hit because I was the last one to go in. I had all these men in the pillbox. And they got me out to a hospital ship, from the hospital ship to a hospital in Naples. And then on to a, uh, 10 days later, I went on a hospital ship back to the States. I was at St. Albans, Long Island for about two months. And then I went back home to, uh, I live in Milwaukee. I went back to Great Lakes, Illinois, which is about 50 miles away. I agitated until they sent me to Great Lakes. So I'd be near home. And it took me until the following, I didn't go back on active duty until the following July or August, something like that. My leg was okay, but the nerves were gone. And they, rather than operate, they tried all kind of therapy. And as long as they were trying therapy, it didn't bother me because I was, I was, you know, practically home. Right. So that's it. Well, I think the most vivid memory is that when I came back, from the officer, I told you I came back around noon of D-Day. We, we went into our pillbox by 8, 9 o'clock, and I stayed there, and then I got word that they were going to have a meeting of the officers. I had a meet. I left the fellows. I came back, and I asked them where this one man was, and they said he went down the beach. I don't know for what purpose. And I said, well, maybe he knows where we are. I hope he gets back. He never got back. So the next morning, like I told you, that afternoon we couldn't search for him because we had a mission to do. The next morning, the chief petty officer and myself went behind the lines a couple hundred yards where they had graves registration. They had bodies, mostly uh, paratroopers, laid out prior to, you know, they register them, and I don't know what they do with them then. So I went to the officer in charge, and I told him, we lost a man. I'm trying to find him. He says. We have no way of knowing. He says, go take a look. So this chief petty officer and myself, we went down row after row after row. There must be a few hundred people there, from the paratroopers, from, you know, we found his body. We had no idea what killed him. We had no idea what happened. Could have been a bullet from a plane. Could have been... Uh, he wasn't blown up, so I don't think it could have been a landmine or anything like that. There were mines there. But I think it could have been, a, or it could have been a stray bullet, could have been friendly fire, which happens all the time. A lot of them didn't come back. All you, all you could do is, you know, you, you have a certain amount of uh, sympathy, of course. 
And uh, the people here are glad that you came back. You know, that's the thing. And they say, it's too bad that, you know. I went back to Normandy on the 50th anniversary. And I, w I went to Omaha Beach where I saw all the ceremonies and whatnot. And I was going on a bus from our hotel to Normandy Beach. And right behind uh, Utah, uh, not Utah, Omaha, there's an American cemetery with about uh, 900 graves in there. In fact, I was there before. On the 40th anniversary, my wife and I went to Paris. We took a special trip there, and we visited the grave of that man I lost. He's buried in that American cemetery. We also visited him on the 50th. But going to the 50th, going to the ceremony, the bus passes through all these little towns back of the battlefield, these little French towns. And if you're going very slow, you could read the inscriptions on the headstones of a lot of the headstones in the cemeteries. So you see Jack was so-and-so, age 6, June 6, 44. So-and-so, age 10, June 6, 44. A woman, age 29. And you wonder, what happened? What happened was in the naval bombardment and in the bombardment from the sky, a lot of these bombs fell beyond the coast into these little villages. And those people were killed. And you don't know it unless you see their headstones in the cemetery. And that sort of struck me at the time, you know, coming in and realizing all these civilians, because there was no way to warn them, this invasion's coming. You can't announce it, we're coming, get out of the way. These civilians were killed because they were maybe five miles back of the coast, and when those naval guns were shooting 16, these 16-inch 16 guns, and when the bombs were coming down and there was a lot of smoke and everything on the shore, they got hit. And, that, and you, you'll see them on the headstones if you... So those were impressions, you know, that you get. And of course, we had memorial services uh, at the cemetery and we were... So that's about it. That was Ensign Nathan Irwin. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.